You're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I'm your host, Isaiah Burridge. Well, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. On today's episode, I'm going to be playing a discussion I had with Eli Ayala of Revealed Apologetics. We talk about presuppositional apologetics, how it relates to your life, how it relates to all these intrinsic issues within Christian theology, and Eli is such a brilliant and articulate speaker. Uh, I just enjoyed my conversation with him so much. So we circle around a lot of different aspects of Christian theology through the lens of apologetics. I didn't have a really narrow outline because... Uh, Me and him had just such a great conversation. I didn't want it to feel controlled. I just kind of wanted to talk to him as I would talk to any friend. But I hope you enjoy this because Eli teaches us how to think biblically about all we do. I really admire his heart, and he is who he is, a super intelligent guy. Go check him out at Revealed Apologetics. It's on YouTube, and I put a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Well, thanks for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. I am honored to have Eli Ayala on the program to discuss apologetics and the current Christian climate of theology in general. Eli, thank you for coming on. Man, I've been watching your show for a few years now, and I'm truly excited to be able to talk to you. So just if you could introduce yourself to the listeners, tell me about your ministry, how you got here, your family. What's Eli's world look like? Yeah, well, I'm a full-time teacher. I teach 11th and 12th grade um, U.S. history and European history. Um, I grew up in in New York, Long Island, New York, and um, I have been working for the Christian private schools um, for a long time. I lost track how many years, Um, and I predominantly taught theology and apologetics until I moved here to North Carolina, um, in which hopefully I'll have the opportunity to teach that again. They're switching my position next year, so I'll be teaching uh, sixth grade Bible and eighth grade logic. So I'm going to go into the middle school and uh, teach something that's a little, a little bit more in my wheelhouse. So I'm excited for that. But when I'm not teaching, I am the founder of Revealed Apologetics, which is a Christian apologetics ministry uh, that focuses on apologetics in general and presuppositional apologetics more specifically. And um, most of the stuff I do have By a website. what standard? By what standard? That's right. <laughs> but I, I do have a website, revealedapologetics.com, but uh, pr- the most of my content is on YouTube and iTunes. So uh, if folks want to listen to some of the interviews that I've done with various scholars on different topics, they can do that on YouTube or they can download the, the podcast on iTunes. Um, I also teach an online uh, apologetics course in which I have uh, lectures and people sign up for it. They can sign up for that on my website and I teach people all over the world. So they, they come in like on a Zoom like this and 
Um, they work through um, five, uh, five lectures that they do throughout the course of five weeks. And we meet once a week to talk about and go deeper into the content. And um, I'm actually excited to uh, be starting that specific course, which actually begins on June 7th. So if anyone who's listening to this and wants to learn presuppositional apologetics in a more structured way, they can sign up for that um, at revealedapologetics.com. It's actually called Presup U, Presup University. And um, um, you can get a kind of more structured instruction that way. And it actually helps uh, my ministry as well. It's kind of how I also raise funds to keep doing what I'm doing. Well, amen, man. Well, I will provide all those links and the notes mm. to my show when I get this all edited. Cool. Um, yeah. This, Thank you. I will be, I will be airing this uh, probably by the weekend or first thing Monday. I'm trying to do my stuff a week out. I just posted an episode with Mr. Nick Potts about amillennialism. But uh, today, like Eli said, we're going to talk apologetics, presuppositional apologetics. But before we get into our main discussion, Eli, I just have to tell you and compliment you and tell you how much my wife and I enjoyed uh, one of your most recent episodes about the Shroud of Turin. Oh, yes. We we knew about this. We had watched some things here and there, but you... You're a wonderful director of interviews, how you just kind of keep, I'm not even sure what the, what the word would be. Uh, is that administrative skills? Or I, I feel like I do the same thing on my show. That's why I really like your show, because you're not always giving your dogmatic opinions. You're just trying to learn about some things. But yeah. long story short, we got chills down our spine a few weeks ago watching that. Are okay. you starting to come around to the potential reality? Are you still on the fence? Or I, I, I feel weird about it because it, it feels so Roman Catholic to me, but it looks so <laughs> legit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, based upon that discussion, I, I kind of had a passing knowledge of the Shroud of Turin, and I, and I kind of from a distance followed some of the documentaries and things like that. And so the evidence kind of seemed interesting, uh, but not conclusive. Well, based upon what um, Doug Powell, who was the, the guest that I had on to, to give the evidence for the Shroud, um, after hearing a lot of what he said, my my credibility meter went up. Now, for me, it's ultimately not a big deal in terms we'll of- We'll know in eternity. R- right. It's not a big yeah. deal whether the shroud is legit or not. It's irrelevant to the truth of the Christian worldview. But it is interesting that yeah. if the Shroud of Turn is is legit, and we actually have a like a, a photograph of what Jesus right. might have looked like. That's uh, so. In that sense, it's very um, interesting. And based upon our discussion in that interview, which I highly recommend people to, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, I'll based link upon it. that discussion, I am a little bit more convinced that there might be something to it. Um, so that's where I stand now. And um, yeah, I, I I have to go back and listen to it again. But I thought um, Doug sure. did an excellent job unpacking some of the details and answering a lot of the objections. I I could actually tell from the comments of the video, people are saying, "Hey, this is a great conversation, but what about this?" And you could tell the people asking the question didn't didn't listen to the whole interview because they're bringing yeah. up points that they think are so definitive for the opposing side uh, that didn't they didn't even actually listen long enough to actually see that Doug sufficiently answers uh, each and every one of those uh, objections that can be raised. So. Um, I highly recommend people go back and, and listen to that discussion. It was, it was pretty convincing, in my opinion. You're, you're telling me people on the internet did not fully watch what they were yeah. talking about? <laughs> yes, yes. That's, that's how... <laughs> no, um, in, all, in all serious, man, that's, uh, that's where Megan and I stood, too. We, we find it, um, especially that the, the evidence of the pollen and certain things that were 
present on the shroud that could be traced to Jerusalem and through through the path that the, the shroud went through over many centuries. Again, it's not a nail in the coffin, but it's sure if I get to eternity and the Lord says, hey, that was legit, man, I, I'm not going to say I'm shocked because it, like I said, it, it, it gave us chills. And it's a very evidential thing. And, and that's why I wanted to bring this up, obviously, because we're going to be talking about presuppositional apologetics. So, you know, Eli, I'm, I'm, it's kind of funny. The sign behind you is exactly what comes to my mind. First I'll Peter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, the, for first Peter 315 tells us to always have a defense for the hope that is in us. And uh, uh, apologia is the word. And or is it apologia? I'm not quite sure. But, um, you know, what many people may or may not know is that there's a number of methods to defending the Christian faith and the Christian worldview. And I don't consider them inherently wrong, but I think there's well, there's a time and place for everything. So today, I would like for you to tell us about presuppositional apologetics, why you believe it's the most biblical and consistent method. And I'll bring up the other methods as we talk and just really just have a brotherly conversation. So Eli, what's presup? How'd you get there? Give me your thoughts here. All right. We can define it in, and describe it in different ways. So in a very simplistic way, um, I, would, I would take presuppositional apologetics as, as what I like to call a top-down approach. So if you take, for example, classical apologetics or evidential apologetics, mm-hmm. those are bottom-up approaches. You start here and you work your God. way up to the conclusion, okay. therefore God exists. And the way they do that is they appeal to, um, evidentialism will appeal to specific evidences and classical um, methodology will be more of kind of giving rational argumentations with, of course, some evidence mixed in there. So classicalism right. and evidentialism are very close um, cousins in terms of methodology. But presuppositionalism, I would say, is a top-down approach in that it starts with God and argues that unless you start with God, you couldn't make sense out of out of anything. And so um, yeah. in that sense, it is a top-down approach. And I believe that's the biblical approach because I believe the Bible promotes and teaches the idea that we need to start with God um, in order to make sense out of anything. I mean, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, in his light, we see light. Uh, as the book of Psalms tells us, I mean, we don't understand anything unless it's understood within the context of the creator. And so I think the presuppositional methodology captures that idea very, um, very clearly. And, and I think in a very powerful way, I would also say that presuppositional apologetics, if I were to define it in kind of biblical categories, I would say, that presuppositional apologetics is an apologetic methodology that seeks to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, even the thoughts of the unbeliever. I'll say that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, presuppositional apologetics is an apologetic method that seeks to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, even the thoughts of the unbeliever. And so what that looks like is it's going to be a presuppositional approach. And and it kind of says to the unbeliever, listen, if you want to make sense out of anything, you need to make sense out of it within the context of how God has revealed the world. If you reject that revelation, uh, then you are reduced to absurdity. You're reduced to what the Bible calls the fool, right? And so we make a very important distinction between the foolish reasoning, uh, reasoning that is based upon a philosophy that is not rooted in Christ, as opposed to the philosophy of Christ right? This is where you have in Colossians where it tells us to beware of philosophy. Um, it's not telling <laughs> us to beware of philosophy in general, 
but it's telling us to beware of a particular kind of philosophy, the sort of philosophy that is not rooted in Christ, but rather is based upon the elementary principles of this world. So presuppositionalism, I would define in all those different categories. And last point, so you can get to your next question, presuppositionalism tends to focus on the presuppositions um, that are important to the discussion between the believer and unbeliever. So instead of arguing about facts and evidence, like, hey, I have more evidence than you do, right? I have more evidence as a Christian than, than you do, Mr. Unbeliever. Presuppositionalists will focus on the presuppositions or elementary assumptions that everyone brings to the interpretation of the facts and the evidence. So we don't argue facts versus facts. We argue who has the proper worldview lens, mm-hmm. right, through which facts are interpreted, who's seeing the world in the correct in the correct light. And so as a presuppositionalist, I want to show the unbeliever that he's actually using the wrong prescription glasses, right? He's, he's looking at the world through an unbelieving lens. Uh, I want him to have the believing lens. I want you to be able to see clearly by putting on the Christian worldview. Um, and just to put a period at the end of that, um, we also argue along with the scripture that all men know that God exists. There's a very profound way in which everyone has a knowledge of God, such that they are, um, as Romans chapter one, verse 18 and on says, they are unapologetus, which is literally, they are without an apologetic. So um, another aspect of presuppositionalism is not so much adding new content and information to the unbeliever who's otherwise ignorant, but rather we are seeking to remove the mask and expose the reality that they actually know the God that we're speaking of, but they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So that's presuppositional apologetic methodology in a nutshell. I apologize that presuppositionalism sounds complicated when in fact I could dare to just call it biblical apologetics, but that might sound too pretentious to people who are listening and saying, oh, there he goes. You know, <laughs> I really no, think it's man. biblical. So I, 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 would... I do too. Yeah. I, you know, th- this show, my show is based on, you know, it's called depends on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And what I'm not saying is, oh, it, every essential Christian doctrine just depends on where you're at and everyone's yeah. going to heaven. That's, <laughs> that's not um, how this show works. This show is pretty much a reformed Christian podcast with some nuances here and there. And I talk to different camps on a lot of different things, but The reason I bring this up is I found myself drawn to this apologetic method as my beliefs in soteriology started to go more towards a reformed five-point Calvinism. If I believe that man is, you know, dead in sin and truly knows the God whom he denies and hates so much, well, these presuppositions work out very well. One of my favorite things is when someone says, well, I'm not a Christian because... (laughs) you know, there, there can't be a God with all the evil in the world. And you're going, what's evil, you know, what, by what standard? And, you know, I've, it's, it's kind of a joke and a pejorative against our camp. I know the, by what standard thing, but truly Eli, if we're being honest, everyone is a Christian in their assumptions every single day. Yes. In their assumptions. Yes. In their assumptions there, but your general person is trying to de- you know live a decent life and be a decent person but why 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 would you want to do why would you care about any of that if there's not a transcendent god with transcendent truth that's behind all of that and i think that's what was attractive to me about presuppositionalism but i guess my question for you is how about those things that have their place where do, where do you use it in a conversation with an unbeliever like evidence we can talk about that 
there's a sufficient amount of evidence about that Jesus rose from the dead. There's mm -hmm. a sufficient amount of evidence that the Bible is says what it says, but the authors that it's been associated with, that can be historically relied upon as well. But it isn't the it isn't the touchdown for most people because it feels like even if you provide someone a sufficient amount of evidence for a biblical truth, they don't really care because their heart is still in a negative disposition to the gospel. Right. So what do you do with that? And you step into their world and critique it. How, how does that look, Eli? Well, first, you did mention something very important, and it's a part of presuppositional apologetics is having your apologetic methodology rooted in a solid biblical theology. And so we mm -hmm. do not go into the apologetic situation not assuming the truth of what God has said with respect to the nature of the unbeliever. For example, um, when we speak with the unbeliever, we have to know what the Bible says about the unbeliever. Um, the Bible says that it's man who is deceitful, Jeremiah 17, 9, full mm -hmm. of evil, Mark 7, 21 through 23. He loves darkness rather than light, John 3, 19. He cannot come to God on his own, John 6, 44. Does not seek for God, Romans 3, 10 through 12. Is helpless and ungodly, Romans 5, 6 is a slave to sin, Romans 6.20 and John 8.34, cannot receive spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.14, is dead in his sins, Ephesians 2.1, and is by nature a child of wrath, Ephesians 2.3, and is at enmity with God. That is the nature of the person you are confronting, whether the person seems nice, whether the person seems genuine. We cannot go into the apologetic uh, task without recognizing what the Bible has said about the unbeliever. So that's really mm -hmm. important. Understanding what the Bible says about the unbeliever actually informs us as to how we use all the other things you just referred to. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, evidence is not to be used in a way so as to convince an otherwise ignorant person. So that, that's how we don't use evidence. Evidence sure. is not to inform the ignorant, right? Um, and I would say that presuppositionalists are, are eminently evidential in that we literally, unlike, by the way, unlike the evidentialist who typically argues in a different way, we actually believe everything is evidence for God. There's no such yeah. thing as evidence against God. There's no such thing as well, what if the evidence seems to point in one direction? You know, how should we, there, there is no such thing as evidence pointing away from God. God is the necessary precondition for the intelligibility of all facts. Um, and that's where we would say, you know, say, well, what about evolution? It seems like there's strong um, mm -hmm. evidence for this. Well, wait a minute, evidence has to be interpreted. So it's not an issue of uh, a theory having strong evidence or not. It's who is interpreting the data correctly? Who is coming to the data with the proper framework? Because to use evidence, it needs to be understood in a, frame, in a framework. If you have the wrong framework or the wrong worldview, then you're not understanding the evidence correctly. And what we're arguing is that the Christian worldview provides the only context, the only intellectual context in which facts can actually make sense. Um, yes, I understand that there are super smart unbelievers that know the facts really well, but regardless of how smart they are, when you get past the uh, technical language, when you get past how well they do their science and yada, 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 when you get to the heart of the issue, all unbelievers, whether educated or ignorant, are operating on a faulty, God-denying, covenant-breaking system and framework. And uh, we all should be in a position to expose that by asking the right questions and exposing the knowledge of God that even the intellectual PhD scientist has. Um, and so the presuppositionalist tries to do that, 
by employing his method, by going to the foundation and asking the unbeliever to account for the things that they take for granted um, and show that they actually have their feet firmly planted in midair. So with that out of the way, the, how do we use evidence? How do we navigate uh, using evidences? We use evidence as illustrations confirming what we've said at the beginning. Um, so for example, when I say the Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions of intelligible experience or the Christian worldview provides the preconditions for knowledge, these sorts of things, one of the ways that I illustrate that is I can take certain data points and show that it actually supports precisely what I'm saying. So when I use evidence, I'm never using evidence assuming the ignorance of the unbeliever. I'm never using evidence in a way that assumes that evidence could be made sense out of without consideration of the Christian worldview. So I don't yeah. believe in neutral facts, facts that are these just kind of neutral set of information that the unbeliever and the believer can use you know, in the same way, I would argue that only the Christian context gives those facts meaning, and um, and then we challenge the unbeliever to make sense out of the things they take for granted. Amen. No, man, I mean, this is very informative for me, number one, but I mean, I have these experiences all the time. I was just mentioning to you, you know, before we started recording about, you know, my medical struggles. Well, I have sure. a lot of doctors in my life, and there's been times where I think everyone tries to put up a fake pretense of, you know, we can all, you know, just, we just all want you to get better and, you know, and live a good life. But if you really rooted down, I have a lot of atheist doctors and I don't know why they actually care to prolong my life when in their, in their consistent worldview, mm -hmm. the, you know, as James White would say, the best thing is for the fit to move on and the sick to die out. Yeah. And I think everyone can somewhat recognize the image of God, even though they can't consistently account for it. And that's why I believe presuppositional apologetics really hits at the root of that, because it really gets to why do you even want to do good? Why do you feel these inclinations? Why do you judge my God based off things you're borrowing from my God? Mm -hmm. um, and I so think when, when the doctors want to prolong your life, and they see you as having value, I think they actually mean it. They genuinely- uh, Me too. I, again, uh, please hear me correctly. I'm not saying they, want, they really want me dead. I'm right. saying that I believe their heart, but what they actually account for in their brain about mm -hmm. how we got here, what the end of man really is, it, mm -hmm. doesn't com it, it doesn't, it's not consistent. Right, it's inconsistent. Yep, I, got, I agree. You know, my wife was not a Christian when we first met. Okay. Um, luckily, I had been reading presuppositionalists and listening to guys who were continuing on the work of people like Bonson and Van Til. And it was very helpful for me because my wife was really into new age occultism, believe it or not. Okay. And she was worried that when my, when my wife realized that I was a Christian and very serious about it, she was worried that I would think all of her beliefs in the supernatural were just dumb, not real. And something that helped me talk to her was, well, actually, what you're experiencing, what you believe about the paranormal and this, that, and the other, and she'd had some experiences that we would now call demonic, but at the time she called them, you know, like some kind of um, guiding dream or something, some kind of spirit manifested and so I didn't come in there sounding like a functional atheist that believes in Jesus. I actually said, well, I believe everything you believe, but I, I think you have it put in the wrong drawer. 
see the Bible informs us that yes, evil spirits are real. Um, these kind of things are real, but God told us to stay away from these things because it's not it's not written in his word to worship him like this. We don't want to worship God the way the pagans do and things like that. So it was very helpful for me to step into her world and at least affirm that she's not crazy, but she's denying the God who is actually in control of all of it. Sure. And as we talked more and more, she didn't real she didn't know if she believed that Jesus ever walked the earth or not. And Eli, I think I could have demonstrated to her that he did, but she wouldn't have cared. It wasn't until what she'll tell you that God just changed her heart and she read the gospel of John and she says that one day she woke up feeling hollow because all that she had been putting her trust in, she realized she was worshiping creation and not the creator. Right. Now, I know what I'm not describing your typical atheist interaction here, but what I am telling you is that it wasn't evidences that brought her to God. It was her realizing that everything she believed had its place, but it was all in the wrong order. And that the triune God was responsible for logic, for thinking, for, for feelings and emotion in general. And the way she's processing all this information from paganism can't be reckoned without a God who created it all. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to bring that up. And then, you know, we got married and, you know, she's an awesome Christian lady, but evidences became more supportive for her after she was saved it confirmed to her things like the resurrection or um for for us personally we believe that most of the new testament was written before 70 a.d um, other than revelation but i could have showed her those things and showed her the authenticity of the gospels it wouldn't have mattered it wouldn't have mattered so we say by what standard a lot in this home i find that when i listen to people like jeff durbin and james white it feels like they're really just continuing what Bonson uh, did in our, our particular generation. Is that how you would frame it as well? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to fill a gap. I mean, uh, that, that I see, for example, it is um, commonly understood, uh, perceived that presuppositionalists tend to be um, obnoxious sometimes <laughs> in the way that they approach. I, I don't think, well, I, I've been following you. Yeah, I, I've seen you have very good loving interactions with people yeah. who vehemently disagree. And uh, Chris Date and I are kind of on this bandwagon of the Calvinist preceptors have got to make a better representation of ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not every cage staging guy who's shutting people down online necessarily represents right. how I feel about things. But the reason I started this show and obviously love your show is because you have a friendly charitable dialogue while not compromising the truth of gospel presuppositions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, the, in the popular level though, presuppositionalists tend to come across a certain way and uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about presuppositionalism. So one of my goals is just to um, change in my own little way, change the face of presuppositionalism uh, to a more uh, respectable- Puerto Rican, <laughs> uh, more respectable in terms of how we conduct ourselves and to yeah. be able to address really common objections so that people could understand it. Um, and then hopefully people can contextualize that information and use it and really see the strength of it and the fact that it is grounded in scripture. So yeah, I do see myself as kind of one um, cog in the great machine, right? <laughs> uh, doing my part. And, um, you know, even if it's, if it never gets 
big or anything like that. I know that it's it's reaching a certain uh, you know people that I think is they're being edified by it and they're benefiting from it. So I do my I do see myself as trying to continue in my own little way, continue the legacy of of Greg Bonson and Van Til and being the bridge between uh, popular apologetics and academia. So I'm I'm not an academic. Um, I do have I do have some I do have degrees, master level degrees, um, but I've learned zero presuppositional apologetics from them. Um, and so I am conversant with academia. I can function at that capacity, but I'm not an academic myself. And so I try to be the bridge between the average Joe in the street and some of the more technical stuff. So I tend to kind of occupy that middle ground. We talk about pretty deep very stuff, well. but it's not so above that the person who has some background in apologetics couldn't grasp. At least that's what I that's what I hope. Um, but that's where I, that's the kind of the the vacuum I'm trying to fill in in my own way in my own capacity. No man, you're doing a great job and. My wife, who did not grow up a Christian and wasn't familiar with any kind of theological camps, mm. she listens to me in passing, listening to you, or sometimes obviously she watches the show with me, and she's learned a lot because you're, yes, on the one hand, you're not speaking this academic, you know, unintelligible language to yeah. people who are just trying to get by in their Christian faith day to day. However, you present a lot of very seriously studied material in a very, um, not condensed way, but a very understandable way. Mm-hmm. So you, you do a very great job at that. I, I prefer guys like you who aren't quote unquote, um, academics. I've interviewed plenty of academic guys on my show, but sure. it, it does get harder and harder to try to make that presentable to people who, um, that need it the most. And I think that Christians are called to be theologians, man. Like, right. you know, I don't expect you to be able to write a tome or something like that, yeah, but yeah. we should just like first Peter three fifteen says, we should be able to give a defense. And that isn't always just a simple defense of the resurrection. I think we need to understand Christology and soteriology and eschatology because it's all intrinsically connected. Um, the Bible is the whole counsel of God is a unit and it's our job to rightly divide that word. Right. And I think you do a, a very good job of bringing the Academy to, um, you know, my ears, if you, if, if, if that metaphor works. Well, um, I, I appreciate that. And um, I think it's funny because most of my apologetic encounters are, typically deal with issues of theology. So we can talk about like transcendental arguments and presuppositional mm-hmm. responses to the atheist, but like 99.9% of the people I've interacted with, I, I end up seeing myself having to defend basic Christian truths and basic Amen. Christian theology. So as I said before, our apologetic needs to flow from the soil of theology. And so, um, you know, so your, some of your best tools in doing apologetics is the Bible and a good systematic theology. That'll even help you with atheists. You know, don't think I'm talking to the atheists. I have to know all this science. Like, no, a good systematic theology in a Bible, you'll go a really long way for the average person. Um, you know, obviously that's not sufficient. Depends who you're talking with. I mean, you're going to have different levels of sophistication, but for the average person, yeah. And, and and by what standard? As much as that's become kind of like the caricature, mm-hmm. I I highly recommend people use that concept uh, when we're teaching uh, when we're teaching apologetics to people in the church. It's not useful to talk about transcendentals and necessary preconditions and these sorts of things. The average person's not going to interact with the, with the generic atheist YouTuber 
or some philosopher or something like that. You know, in day-to-day conversation, asking someone by what standard do you say that is a simple way to capture what we're getting at. So as much as people make fun of it and they, you know, they're like, oh, you know, by what standard this, that, or the other thing, I think it's an excellent tool for the average person to employ a presuppositional approach. So I encourage people to use that because really that's what we're asking. By what standard do you make the statements that you make? That's right. That. And, and just just because I'm talking to listeners here, just because something has become a pejorative doesn't mean it was inherently flawed or wrong right. or untruthful, because right. b- bottom line, um, just like you're saying, Eli, the people that my wife and I talk to who we are evangelizing in our life, dude, they're not they're not your militant atheist that is uh, quoting Dawkins. They're not. Sure. They're people who, like I said, have a basic, basic moral compass. But when you start getting into the harder issues like abortion and things like that, that moral compass starts falling apart with man's selfishness. Sure. So when you can call someone out going, but if, if there is an objective truth that murder is wrong, we got a reason from that. Right. And again, I'm not trying to start the Roe versus Wade topic here, but that is obviously a hot topic in our nation right now. And guess what? Apologetics come in handy when you get in that topic, don't they, Eli? Actually, I'm going to have a friend on who's debated the topic of abortion, and he's going, we're going to go through, the episode's going to be entitled Abortion, Apologetics and Abortion. Oh, well, there you go. I did not know that. Now, the friend I'm having on is not a presuppositionalist, but he he has some really great points that I think folks will find useful. So I'll definitely, um, once we nail down a specific date, you know, I'll be uh, promoting that. It'll be on my Facebook and uh, website and things like that, so... Well, awesome, man. Well, that, that's another thing I appreciate about you. You you interview and talk to a lot of people who you might not necessarily agree with, but you get their side of the story. Sure, um, yeah. I really enjoyed um, your interviews with Guillaume Bignon. He really introduced me to the idea that sola scriptura isn't inherently anti-philosophical. Um, so he you know, defends God's sovereignty in a very philosophical way. Sure. Um, but but going back to the apologetic issue, why? What would you say to the argument where some people quote the Book of Acts, where how Paul's making evidentialist arguments or reasoning and arguing with them? You know, many days. Do you think Paul was using presuppositions, or do you think Paul was specifically only pointing to the evidence of the resurrection? Because I don't get that from the Book of Acts. Feels like yeah. he's reasoning from the scriptures themselves. Yeah, well, um, that's a false dichotomy, right? So, so people would say like, oh, do we appeal to presuppositions or do we talk about the evidences? And mm-hmm. well, the presuppositional answer would be both. Um, I, can, I can talk about one's assumptions. I could start there if I'd like, right. or I can start with specific data points. So if someone were to say, hey, man, you know, how do you know the Bible's reliable? I don't have to give them a, a, a history lesson of epistemology. And, uh, right. you know, I think it was uh, John Frame who had messaged me a while back. And no, we're not special friends or anything like that. I was that. about to I, say, you got to hook me up, man. No, 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 no. We, I, uh, we're friends on Facebook. And if I ask him a question, if he finds like a millisecond, he'll just type up a brief little thing. But it's not like we're buddy buddies or anything like that. But um, I remember he said something along the lines that um, he wishes that when presuppositionalists do apologetics, it doesn't always include a history lesson on um, epistemology. Uh, we always have feel the need that we have to talk, well, you know, what's necessary to know anything, you know? Yeah, like that's great and it's important and there's definitely a context for that, but you don't always have to start there. If someone were to say, you know, how do you know the Bible's reliable? 
I have no problem going into the evidences for the Bible and doing so does not make me to cease to be a presuppositionalist, right? So people say, hey, sometimes, you know, um, I can use presuppositional apologetics and then sometimes I use evidential apologetics. Well, that's impossible if you want to be consistent. A presuppositionalist can never use evidentialism as a methodology. And so we need to make a distinction between um, evidentialism as a method methodology and the use of evidences. They yeah. are not the same. We got to so, define the terms because evidence is inherent to our conversation. Yes. But the hermeneutic of evidence, or maybe not hermeneutic, I'm sorry, but the, the method of evidentialism is what you would, you would encourage not to do in a conversation with an unbeliever, right? Right. So, so I use evidence as a presuppositionalist. I don't use evidence as an evidentialist. So that's why I okay. said at the beginning, it's a false dichotomy okay. to say, do we focus on the presuppositions or can we use evidences? Well, there's nothing uh, intrinsic to presuppositionalism that says it has to be either or. I mean, if everything is evidence for God, then I could literally talk about any piece of evidence I want. The air that I breathe is evidence for God. That's right. Man. You could you can prove God's existence by, you know, talking about a cup and the <laughs> reliability of sense perception or well, whatever. What really I mean, is a cup. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but um uh yeah, so I would I would appeal to um evidence for the resurrection, but it would just be uh it would just be a confirmation of my broader um argument that you need God to understand history. You know, and to show you that I'm not simply making a bare assertion. Yeah, let's get into some of the details here. Given the Christian worldview, history makes sense. Given the fact that history makes sense, we could explore questions about the past. And given Christian presuppositions, here's how we go about it to show you that, look, there's good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not evidentialism. That's just using evidences within a consistent presuppositional framework. So, we'd have to make that distinction between the use of evidences and evidentialism as a methodology. Sure. And I think that would, that circles me back to what I was saying earlier, how my soteriology naturally flowed to a presuppositional worldview and hermeneutic. No, I'm sorry. Right. I keep using hermeneutic. Forgive me, Eli. That's a okay. presuppositional apologetic method. I do know the right terminology, but it seems as soon as I hit record, any, all my systematic theology just goes away. <laughs> well, hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. So you could make some application to use like a kind of intellectual hermeneutic to interpret facts and things like that. So technically you're not off, although hermeneutics typically relates to kind of like interpreting liter literature or things like that. So you hear I that know what he's, he's actually trying to defend me using the wrong terminology. Well, I Thank mean, you, it's, it's, it's an un, you're using an uncommon way to, but I, I, it still kind of makes <laughs> sense if, if we wanted to be nitpicky. <laughs> no, you're good, man. I, I guess what I realized, you know, I grew up in church. I, I don't remember a time, Eli, that I was not saved. Um, okay. The Presbys would call me a covenant kid, you know, a okay. covenant child. I would call me that my parents did very well. And one day I really placed my true faith in Christ when I really understood, you know, metaphysics and just, just basic things like that. I was, a, I was a young, probably 12 year old, something like that when I was baptized. Okay. But I realized as I started studying and really getting a theological worldview that I naturally assumed that the unbeliever isn't going to care what evidence I present to them because I had read through Romans and I realized that they are suppressing the truth. And, and I think Jeff Durbin uses an analogy like trying to hold a uh, like a volleyball or a basketball underwater in a pool. And, you know, it, 
it eventually tries to shoot up, but you're, you're, you're really suppressing it. And what bothered me about evidentialist apologetics to where the assumption was, if you just give them enough evidence, they'll believe. Mm. I didn't believe that in my heart based on the scriptures, because I think that there will be people on judgment day that will still hate the God that's judging them because that's their natural disposition. Mm-hmm. So I don't think evidence alone is ever going to sway the heart. Um, and I'm sure there's claims to the contrary, but in your personal experience, Eli, I don't, and I'm not trying to uh, probe you like, what's your count, what's your count of converting people? But if you've ever had someone in your life that you feel that you led them to the Lord, do you mm-hmm. believe it was based on evidences or do you think it was more of a organic understanding of the God of scripture in general? Yeah, well, we got to be careful when we say based on the evidence, because I would say um, when we I would even be careful when we say it doesn't matter about the evidence because he's suppressing the truth. That's true. I believe that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't present evidence. So I would say that God can use evidence. Right. As Mm -hmm. uh, along with the working of the spirit. Right. As part of the process whereby he brings his elect to a saving knowledge, right? The means, sure. Right, so so I would say that there's the proper use of evidence. We should use evidence, but we wouldn't say, you know, faith is based on the evidence. That, so, that's, so, yes. I'm, right. I'm trying to say that my, my intuition wouldn't be, I just got to give them enough evidence. My intuition would be right. the spirit of God has to, has to do what the spirit of God does and let God use me at whatever instrument i need to be mm-hmm. but i certainly wouldn't go into that conversation with just an evidential apologetic that's what right. i'm trying the, to say the fact that the person it. comes to the lord or the, you know becomes saved is not be simply because of the evidence but we want to be careful simply because of the evidence doesn't mean no evidence we should never use it so we should Amen. avail ourselves of all the tools that god has has given us because evidence functions great as a reminder of the god they know exists <laughs> so right right so we want to get we want to break through the the self-deception by reminding them of the things they take for granted and that could be any data point that we want to discuss so um so that being said yeah i did have a friend who um we used to debate and go back and forth in my car we used to do child care um together i used to do before care and after care real quick before care is when you work at a school in the morning, you watch the kids from seven to 9.30. So you mm-hmm. play games with them, you help them with their homework. And then at 9.30, they go to class. And then we do aftercare, which is after school from three to six, we'd watch the kids, help them do their homework, play games. It was an awesome job, especially when I was in college. It was just a great job because it was very flexible. So I worked with this guy, his name was Will. And um, um, after morning care, We'd go to the deli, buy egg sandwiches and sit in my car for like an hour. And he was an atheist and he would ask me a billion questions. And um, I remember one time he invited me over to his house. He says, you know, I want you to come over and I want you to watch this video that completely refutes Christianity. And it was that zeitgeist, <laughs> it was that zeitgeist video when it became popular. Oh, I don't know if you're familiar with zeitgeist. I am. Yeah. Well, that, it was when that just like became viral. Now, of course, he invited a bunch of his atheist friends and i was sitting there and he's putting on pause what about that what about that and i was able to answer all of the points you know it was right, really right. bad but it was popular because it was on the internet you know <laughs> and i bet you were defending basic christian theology too yeah that that's basically that's basically it. Yeah, yeah it was basic christian theology theology so, matters 
we had long conversations like that at his house or, um, you know, in my car. And then eventually um, we graduated from college. I no longer worked there. He no longer worked there. We kind of moved on. Now, some years passed by and uh, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. She had a, mm. um, a um, like a, a cancerous tumor in her. And so she was in the hospital. And so I had um, gone to the hospital to visit her. And just as I got out of the car, someone grabbed me from behind. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm about to get mugged or something like that. Wow. The person doesn't say hi. The person doesn't say that they say Eli. And the moment he said Eli, I recognized who it was. And it was my friend who I used to work with. I, and it, it had been a couple of years since we had seen each other. And he says, Eli. And I, and I turned around and it was my friend, Will. And he goes, I just want to thank you because of all those conversations we had in your car. I'm a Christian now, and I'm going to seminary to be a youth, a youth pastor. And he actually invited myself and my family. And I lived on Long Island. Long Island looks like this little fish. It's a long island. And it has like a barrier island called Fire Island. And so he was going to preach his first sermon at a church on Fire Island. And he uh, brought my family out on a ferry ride. And we all went there. And he preached his first sermon where he talked about how we met and how we had these conversations and how you know, uh, our conversations had led him to, or, or at least was part of his journey to becoming a Christian. So, so yeah, I've experienced, you know, that when, so for example, when, when unbelievers, you know, will comment on some of my videos on presuppositional apologetics, you know, they'll say, mm -hmm. this is dumb. It never works. It'll never work <laughs> on anyone. And it's just silly uh, because I've seen it. I've seen God use presuppositionalism. I've seen God use the discussion of evidences that YouTube atheists call stupid and they are a waste of time. Sure. Um, they, God has used them. I've actually, I've actually witnessed God use them and I've actually had meaningful relationships and conversations with people that go far deeper than simply, you know, comments on a YouTube, uh, on, you know, on a YouTube page or whatever. So, yeah. So I, I can't count how many people that's happened sure. to me, but that specific one kind of stands out and shows that God, God uses the things that we're doing and it makes right. sense because he commands us to use them. I wasn't trying to grill you. I just was curious if you had yeah. any stories of conversion because I obviously have my wife who I watched her, mm -hmm. you know, go from unbeliever to believer based on me affirming that her worldview is wrong, but showing her where God sure. fills in all those blanks. But also we, we discussed evidences. So I, I wanted you to hear me correctly. I'm not shunning any evidences. I'm saying that I'm a Calvinist. I believe the spirit of God uses means to an end. And it might be, might be a good argument for the resurrection, but more or less, I think it's just a gospel centered presentation. And I don't enjoy putting up a pretense that, well, we're both neutral on this one specific thing. Let's try to argue our way into this. I just don't think that's generally, it's not how people think. And I really appreciate when Greg Bonson would be very bold and say, look, no one's neutral on anything. And I think if, we just kind of swallowed that pill. I think we'd probably see a little bit more fruits of our evangelizing and things like that. Cause I, the church is really scared in our day and age, man. We've, we're scared of offending. We're scared of hurting feelings. And I'm talking to myself too. I mean, I've been raised in this culture and have purposefully censored myself on God's truths. And I absolutely regret that. Mm -hmm. And I want to make a stronger effort not to be a jerk and just be sounding a, a, a megaphone all the time. But when hard things come up, I want to be bold and show people I'm not neutral. I stand on the word of God. Here's why you should too, because 
you're already borrowing from my worldview in your existence anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess one of the, the critiques I hear for Presup is, well, this is all well and great talking to an atheist because you can critique their worldview and reduce it to absurdity. But aren't we just proving that a God in general exists? Are we actually proving Christianity? How do you, how do you parse this? Um, I know you recently did an apologetics video about Mormons and, and the, with some of the guys from Apologia Church in their debate, but how do you explain and defend presuppositional apologetics talking to someone who's in maybe a religious cult or something like that? Yeah, well, we are never arguing for a generic theism. So if someone says, well, that just proves God, maybe. Well, no, the God that I've been talking about the whole time was the God who's revealed himself both in general and special revelation. So Amen. there's never a point in my argument in which that's not the God I'm referring to. So the, if the assumption is, well, I'm just arguing for general theism, the, um, the inadequacy is not in my argument. The inadequacy is in the person's understanding of what I've been arguing the entire time. Sure. So I start with God, his, uh, God's existence, his uh, revelation, and I argue for that uh, the same way I would argue with the atheist, I would argue with the cult member, right? In Proverbs, uh, I think it's 24, 26, it says, answer not the fool according to his folly, lest you be a fool like unto him. And then it mm -hmm. says, answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. So I use that same, and Bonson would say this, I would use that same two-step method. So I don't reason along the lines of the unbeliever because I don't want to adopt his foolish presuppositions. But then again, I will argue along the lines of uh, assuming hypothetically the truth of the unbeliever's position and show that on its own basis, um, it can't stand. Um, and so it really, it's the same method. It's just, you're going to ask slightly, you know, um, modified questions based upon the particular beliefs of the individual. So for example, if you take Islam, um, arguing with the, with the atheist and arguing with the Muslim is the same for a presuppositionalist. I hypothetically grant the truth of the atheist perspective and show that on atheism, things crumble, right? You know, I'll give you an example, right. just a hand-waving example. If someone is a metaphysical naturalist and they believe all that exists is matter and motion, then I just simply ask them to account for the necessary immaterial laws of logic uh, in their worldview. If everything's physical and the laws of logic are not physical, then on your view, logic doesn't exist unless you're going to reduce logic to something physical. And there's a whole host of problems with that. Um, so it's the same thing for the Muslim. So I hypothetically grant the truth of Islam and show that on Islam, on the truth of Islam, there are problems. You know, you can do that biblically because they accept certain aspects of biblical revelation, or you can do it philosophically or theologically. So for instance, um, in Islam, Allah is actually called the greatest of deceivers. He's actually able to lie and deceive. Mm -hmm. Now, in Christianity, that's impossible, right? So if someone says, how do you know the God of the Bible is not lying to you right now uh, so that you couldn't know anything you think you know because he could be deceiving you? Well, if that were true, then he wouldn't be the Christian God because the Christian God is impossible for him to lie. So uh, that doesn't work on Christianity. But on Islam, if Allah is able to deceive, then my argument stands that um, on Islam, you cannot have Allah as the necessary precondition and foundation for knowledge, because if it is possible for him to deceive you, how do you know he's not deceiving you at this very moment? To believe something that you think is true, but is false. Oh, well, no, Allah is righteous and Allah is holy. He would never do that. Well, maybe that's one of the lies. Now that's possible on the Muslim perspective. So right. the fact that it's possible, it undercuts its own foundation as being an adequate foundation to uh, provide the preconditions for, say, something like knowledge. 
So um, you can run sort of like philosophical and theological arguments like that by hypothetically granting the truth of the position and showing that on its truth, it has these problems. And of course, we welcome that that's actually called an internal critique when you hypothetically right. grant the truth of a position and show that on its own basis, it can't stand. And then we welcome um, the unbeliever to do the same to us. So we're not doing this to avoid answering tough questions. We actually welcome the unbeliever uh, to try to hypothetically grant the truth of the Christian worldview and show that on its own basis, you actually do have the um, the preconditions for knowledge. We can make sense out of science. We can make sense out of history. We can make sense out of mathematical truths. We can make sense out of everything. Uh, really, we have a coherent um, worldview within the Christian perspective. And now at that point, this is why I said at the beginning that one of the most useful things that a, a person could learn in doing apologetics is know your scriptures and know your systematic theology. Because mm -hmm. in order to survive, the internal critique that you have invited the unbeliever to engage in, right? It is required that you know the living daylights out of your own faith. 100%. You need to know your own faith so that you can serve, first, because we want to be faithful to the Lord, but also you want to survive the internal critique. So I'll give you an example. I debated um, an atheist. His name was Eric Murphy. And he was associated with, um, I think, Matt Dillahunty's uh, Atheist Experience. He was kind of a, a sister podcast that branched okay. off from the Atheist Experience. We had a great discussion. It's, it can be found on my channel. It's called The Respectful Dialogue with an Atheist or something along those lines. And um, I was arguing presuppositionally in that, in that discussion, that debate. And um, we were talking about external critiques versus internal critiques. So I told him, if you want to adequately critique the Christian perspective, um, because we have different worldviews, uh, I'm just, I'm just going to interpret your attacks in light of my own worldview, just as you're mm -hmm. doing so with the stuff that I'm giving you. So if you're going to adequately critique my position, you need to hypothetically grant its truth and then argue on its own basis that it doesn't stand. And so when he finally got it, he says, fine, I'm going internal, to internally critique your view, the Trinity. I was like, what about the Trinity? Well, the Trinity is logically incoherent. And of course, what happened when I said, show me how that's the case, he gave me a definition of the Trinity that Christians don't believe. It was actually a contradictory perspective, and I had to actually teach him what the Trinity was. So again, it all boiled down to knowing my theology, and I'm here I am in a discussion and a debate with an atheist. So knowing your theology helps you with the atheist as much as it is when you're dealing with someone who's more theologically inclined, like a cultist or a Muslim or something like that. So knowing your theology is key to in surviving the internal critique and knowing how to answer the right, uh, ask the right questions is vital to providing a good internal critique of the unbeliever's perspective. Now, I like to keep things simple. When I teach apologetics, I often talk about the content of a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. So um, a worldview is literally just a view of the world. Um, mm -hmm. But the more technical definition that Greg Bonson gives in his writings is that a worldview is a network of presuppositions in terms of which all reality is interpreted. And all worldviews are comprised of at least three foundations. Now, this is important because we can be intimidated by certain belief systems that have a whole bunch of different beliefs that we really just can't master. We don't have the time to master everything that Islam has to teach or everything that Mormonism has to teach or everything that Roman Catholicism has to teach. I look for three things. That's it. Just three things. If I find these three things, then all of my questions are geared towards uh, removing one of these foundations. 
And these three foundations are intrinsic to every single worldview. So every single detailed belief within a worldview perspective stand on these three things. So when I talk to the unbeliever, I'm just looking for these three. That's it. Okay. And they're the, the pillars of every worldview. Every worldview is comprised of metaphysic, mm-hmm. an epistemology, and an ethic. Those are just big fancy words, which means something very simple. A metaphysic is one's theory of reality. If I were to ask an unbeliever or anyone, what is real? What is reality? And they begin to answer that question. They are giving me their metaphysic. And right. Epist- and, and yeah, it'll be, I'm sorry. I just, and That's so okay. that could be something like naturalism. Only what's real is what I can feel and touch and be proven by science. Right. Yep. Yeah. So that but you can, you can tear that up pretty quick. Yeah. Well, I mean, as soon as they answer the question, you want to always, you don't want to, you don't want to assume what the person believes. You want to ask those questions. Hey, what do you think about the world? What is the world all about? They might say, I don't know. They might say, yeah, I think we're kind of just moist robots, you know, like depending (laughs) on what they say, they are going to give you ugly bags of mostly water. Yeah. They're either going to give you directly or indirectly their view of reality. And you're going to take note of that. That's one. Remember three things are easy to remember. Okay. The second one is epistemology, and that's a big old fancy word, which refers to someone's theory of knowledge. So basically, how do you know what you know? What is your theory about how we come to know things? Um, And so um, once they uh, give me their theory of knowledge, I keep that in mind. So for example, someone says, hey, you can't know anything unless it's scientifically proven. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, okay, that's his, his theory of knowledge, or you can't know anything unless it's revealed to you by some, you know, cultic God that they worship or whatever, you know, um, they appeal to some kind of revelation. So I'm going to ask questions to get their theory of reality, their theory of how knowledge is gained. And their last, the last pillar of every worldview is, is one's ethic and ethics asks the question, how should we live our lives? Okay. So three things, metaphysics, what's real epistemology. How do we know what we know and ethics? Mm -hmm. How should we live our lives? These are the three things I look for now. Because every worldview is based on those three pillars, if you knock down a pillar, the whole house collapses, as opposed to trying to argue a detail of a belief here. You knock down the pillar, then the whole worldview collapses. So basically what I try to do is I try to show an inconsistency between one of these three pillars, okay? So if someone were to say, "Here's, here's ethics and here's metaphysics, if the atheist says, all that exists is matter in motion. And his ethic is we should treat our neighbors with respect. I now mm-hmm. have identified a contradiction between two of his pillars. Okay. And that that's what I was talking about in my own personal experience earlier. Okay. Yep. So yeah. yeah so you're looking for those, those inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. So all I got to do is, is exploit those, right? Well, wait a minute. If you say we're all matter in motion, there's no God, there's no purpose then on what basis do you say that we ought to act a certain way? Right. Right. And let them grapple with that inconsistency. And you're able to kind of focus your guns on that. If someone were to say, you know, their theory of knowledge, you know, if all is physical, if someone, I'm just, and again, they're atheists don't all hold to this position. Right. It's not, a, it's not monolithic, but there are certain things an we encounter. We encounter this more times than not. Right. If we use an example. If someone were to say all reality is physical. Okay. Now I might want to, if I want to go a little bit more philosophical, I could attack his epistemology. Mm-hmm. So number one, if all things are physical, how does he know all things are physical? That's number one. So we want to challenge him to justify his statement. Okay. Also, we can perform in, in logic what is called a reductio ad absurdum. 
You could reduce mm -hmm. a position a position to absurdity by hypothetically granting it and showing where it leads. So say, for example, all, man is matter in motion. Well, what's entailed by that? If man is purely physical, then man doesn't have an immaterial mind. He has mm -hmm. a material brain. So on this view, thinking doesn't occur in an immaterial mind, like for the Christian, but thinking would actually occur in the physical brain. So here's a question. When you have the brain functioning with all of its neurochemical reactions and synapses and things like that, I asked the, the person, do you control that activity? What are they going to say? <laughs> well, no. Okay. So if thinking occurs in the material brain, but you don't even control the functions and processes that are occurring in your brain, why should we trust anything we think we know? Your brain is, uh, to use the language of Doug Wilson, your brain is fizzing atheism mm -hmm. and my brain is fizzing theism. So how do we know? And of course, I, I brought this up to an atheist once and he says, well, we don't know. We can't, we can't know. Um, he's like, and I was like, well, I mean, if, if you're physically determined to believe whatever you believe, then we couldn't know anything. And he goes, that's right. We can't be certain of anything. And of course, you know, I have uh, Frank, Frank Turek's, Frank Turek's uh, <laughs> opening uh, intro to his uh, cross-examined, you know, if, if truth doesn't exist, you ask them, is that true? You know, right. Um, and of course, you know, uh, it sounds like a simple kind of uh, logical parlor trick, but it's not. I mean, if that's the person's position, then it's logically incoherent. Now, again, if you talk to someone more sophisticated, then you're going to have to nuance those questions and really listen to where sure. they're coming from to identify those inconsistencies. The training comes in identifying, learning how to identify these pillars and asking the right questions to expose the inconsistency. That takes practice. It right. really does. So apologetics is not simply go out and do apologetics and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the always being ready part includes always being in the word. Yes. Knowing your doctrine, checking your life, making sure your life is reflecting your doctrine. Right. Thinking logically about things. Right. Renewing your mind, renewing your mind, understanding the mind of the unbeliever as God has revealed it. Right? right. Pressing those weaknesses that are inherent within the unbeliever's position. It takes practice. There are some fun ways that you can practice recognizing worldview. One of the ways that I do it is watching movies. So when I watch movies, I'm not sitting there with a pen and paper analyzing. I love movies. I love to just enjoy movies. But sure. sometimes I listen to the conversations and I say, hmm, what is that person presupposing when they say this? For example, in the movie Avengers, uh, there is a scene where, and maybe people who have seen Avengers, there's this thing called the Tesseract where everyone's kind of trying to get this, this stone or this cube or whatever. Um, and it actually, when, when it's activated, it actually affects the mood of the people around it. So there's a scene where the Avengers are arguing. I think it's Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor. And they're getting <laughs> angry at each other. And they're arguing back and forth, you know, Iron Man and Captain America and Thor, who's kind of this like, you know, half man, half God. He says, come on, guys, I thought we evolved better. You guys evolved better than this. And I was like, hmm, evolved better than this. Is, does it make sense to evolve better? No. Right? Evolution <laughs> is just change. Where right. do you get the standard? By what standard do you rate better and worse in a world where evolution's true and maybe the i mean it's it's avengers so you can't push this too far because it's fake no. but in a world where god does an absolute god and, and moral lawgiver doesn't exist how do you rate all of those things so um you know i try to identify worldview in 
um, you know, in movies. Look at the Batman movies. You have a very pessimistic, nihilistic philosophy. You know, does it make sense for Batman to go around and save people in a world that really is it meaningless? Doesn't yeah, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's like rearranging chairs on the Titanic. It really doesn't, it really doesn't matter. So um, you could learn how to identify worldview foundations by watching movies, reading a book, listening to the news. Hey, I'm, I'm a musician. You can find some pretty wacky worldviews and songs too. There you go. Yeah. You know, take a look at, at some of the Beatles songs. See if you can oh, critique yeah. the Beatles song, you know, like what is he saying about the world? What must be true? Uh, what else must be true? If what this lyric over here, you know, if, if there is no purpose and, you know, no rhyme or reason for anything, what's the purpose? I just listened to a, an interview um, between Lawrence Krauss, who's an atheist um, astrophysicist, Mm -hmm. And Johnny Depp, the actor, um, and we won't get into some of the other controversy that's happening with him, <laughs> but um, he's talking to this kind of astrophysicist. He's saying, yeah, man, we're all made of stardust. It's amazing. And, and, and because it's amazing and, and our lives are so finite, we got to appreciate it and, and really just live in the moment and, and love. It. And I'm just like thinking about it, well, but, but, but we're stardust. <laughs> like, like, I get it. Like, I'm glad. I'm sure when you say you want to love that you really mean it, you really love, and you really have those relationships. Right. You really try to take life, you know, and, and and live for that moment. But in the ultimate picture, why should we? I mean, we're we're stardust. So, right. so yeah, you can see in, in instances like that, in pop culture, things like that, you can train yourself to identify these things. And I think that'll help you hone your skills that when you're actually interacting with a person, you'll be able to kind of navigate those conversations a little better. 100 percent i've i have seen that in my own personal life of trying to put these kind of methods into to play and really like you said just paying attention to what people say and you might not have to jump on every single thing just listen and and you know that's kind of half the battle is learning to listen right. listen to listen and not always listen to respond um but but like we're saying i want to point out that we're not eli and i are not saying that everyone has malicious intentions and even if they tell you they, they love humanity, they really don't. No, right. we believe they do. We believe they do recognize the image of God. We do believe they um, have righteous intentions sometimes. Uh, if, if you look at transhumanism, we're trying to get eternal life as it is. We're just doing it the, the, all the wrong way. Right. And just unfortunately, denying the God behind these motivations and desires and you can't have life. You can't have righteousness. You can't have objective truth without the truth giver. Sure. So uh, thank you for those very helpful illustrations, uh, Eli. That's very powerful. And I, I will be listening to this episode again, because obviously I'm having a conversation with you, but I get a lot out of listening to my episodes and actually listening to listen and Me not too. always, listen, you know, not episodes. always producing every little thing you get, what you know, you're, you're a podcaster, you, you understand if I can have you be, I guess, self-critical, what would be the hardest objection to this method that you've come across from maybe some, some good brothers in the Lord that just don't find this um, very convincing. Cause I'll, I'll be honest with you for me, I love RC Sproul, but I, as far as I understand, he was not a presuppositionalist. He was a classical apologist. Um, and I believe I listened to him debate or have a discussion with Greg Monson, and there was quite a bit of pushback and that he reduced it to, did he call it fideism? fideism. Am I pronouncing that right? Mm -hmm. What did R.C. Sproul mean by that? And what, what distinguishes presuppositionalism from what he was saying it reduces to? 
Yeah, fideism is kind of like uh, fide is Latin for faith. So mm-hmm. it's basically like faithism. So that we just start with faith in God and we argue if you don't start with God, you can't know anything, you have no foundation, but we really can't demonstrate that. That's just an assertion of faith. We right? just believe it. Right. I have a okay. worldview. You have a worldview. There's no neutrality. So how can we speak to each other if we're operating on completely different perspectives? Well, you just need to believe what I'm saying, right? Um, okay. Now, um, popularly, people believe that presuppositions, which is an elementary assumption, um, can't be proven because if it can be proven, it's no longer a presupposition. So presuppositions are kind of like one's ultimate starting points. And I think that's actually false. And this is the difference. I was about to say that doesn't sound right to me either. The the difference between fideism and presuppositionalism, which uses what we call a transcendental argument, is that um, while it's true that you can't prove a presupposition in the garden variety way that things are proven, namely, we prove some proposition by an appeal to something external to it to demonstrate its truth. Right. So if you say that you can't prove a presupposition and you and by proof, you mean we cannot appeal to something more fundamental than it to demonstrate, then I would agree. You can't prove a presupposition that way. If a presupposition is your starting point, then you can't go outside that starting point to demonstrate your ultimate foundation. I get that. But um, but presuppositionalists don't believe that we're starting with presuppositions that are unprovable. We believe you could actually prove your presupposition transcendentally. And this is important because. That means we believe that we can prove our ultimate starting points, but we don't prove it by going outside it. Rather, we prove it by demonstrating its its transcendental necessity. In other words, even to deny it, you have to presuppose it. So that's why transcendental arguments are arguments that try to demonstrate the truth of something by the impossibility of the contrary. The reason why I know this thing is true is because if you deny it, you have to assume it, which proves it even it's in denial. So if you affirm it, you demonstrate it. And if you deny it, you demonstrate it. So uh, an example of that would be kind of a transcendental kind of argument would be someone who's arguing for their own existence. Mm-hmm. I know that I exist because if I didn't exist, I have to exist in order to say that I don't exist, right? I have to I, presuppose. I think therefore existence. I am kind of thing right, right. Yeah. and 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 um that comes from Rene descartes and Rene descartes uh, what they call uh, what he calls a cogito ergo sum is cogito um i think therefore i am is a sort of transcendental argument and now now there's more to presuppositionalism i mean presuppositionalism is a little different than that but it's sure. the same thing in terms of we have to assume certain things even to to try to demonstrate its falsity logic mm-hmm. someone says how do you know logic is 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 a thing well assume the opposite. And when you assume the opposite, (laughs) if you say, I don't believe in logic, right? (laughs) Language, the sentence you use to say, I don't believe in logic, presupposes logical categories. So to deny it, you have to affirm it. So it's proven by the, it's it's impossible for it to be false. Um, And that's what we're arguing for the God of the Bible. You reject the God of the Bible, and you're actually going to have to presuppose categories that only make sense if the God of the Bible exists. Amen. Sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for distinguishing that uh, for me, because, you know, we're 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 theology nerds. We got a lot of guys we look up to that we don't necessarily agree with on every little sure. thing. But uh, I, I I always kind of assumed when I first first became, you know, reformed, little r reformed that everybody thought the same. And well, obviously, that's demonstrably untrue. And right. 
was kind of shocked to find out that R.C. Sproul, who's, in my opinion, kind of one of the leaders of, you know, the reform movement of the last 50 years or so, that he did not take the presuppositional approach uh, that I had grown up, or not really grown up, but that I had been exposed to so much from listening to folks like James White and Bonson, and, and obviously they're, they're working off uh, Cornelius Van Til um, and things like that. What do you think of people who just want to debate apologetic methods? And what I mean by that is, are we really solving any problems by having an evidentialist debate, a presuppositionalist? I mean, I, I get we're solving things, but do you think those debates matter? Or do you think that all apologetics should just be used and, and let God be the glory? Or do you think there really needs to be a priority of a method? Yeah, I think uh, using the correct method is honoring to God. So I do think mm -hmm. that it, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter what method you use. Um, but then again, as Bonson has said, God can strike a blow with a broken stick. So God is still using <laughs> evidentialists. God is still using classicalists. And you know what? Presuppositionalists can be broken sticks too. And God uses us as well. Sure. So ultimately it's, it's by his grace. But um, on the one hand, I, I think that we need to have balance. So I do believe that um, having those methodological debates are important and they should mm -hmm. happen, but they need to be placed in proper priority. Um, our end all be all shouldn't be just debating endlessly about, you know, apologetic methodology without actually doing apologetics. Um, this is what this is what Bonson's, you know, really his heart was when I first met John Frame at um, RTS in Florida uh, years ago. Um, I asked him, you know, what, it, what was Bonson's kind of like dream, his goal before he died? And he said, well, the number one thing that Bonson wanted was for people to kind of just take it to the streets, like take the apologetics and just use it. Like we can't right. argue endlessly about methodology, you know, therefore go make disciples, right? You, know, you need to actually it. start participating in it. So the debates about method is important. But it should not be on the top notch of our important meter. Yeah, eventually yeah. you have to, you know, I would say that doing apologetics is more important than arguing about apologetics. But that's not to say that arguing about apologetics isn't important. It's just an right. issue of having balance in our perspective. Amen. I, I just wanted you to understand the heart of my question was, mm -hmm. I think you both, we both know that we live in a polarizing age of keyboard warriors. Yes. And I think I, I, I want to see the truth of God demonstrated. I want to see it lived out. I don't, I don't want to just see, well, that was a good argument for classicalism. I wonder how he'll respond to that. But again, it's important to talk about these things. Just like I think it's important to talk about soteriology and for me to have a discussion with my Arminian brothers and sisters and tell them why I've come to the conclusions I've come to. Um, but ultimately, I, I trust my Arminian friends to go make disciples with the same passion that I'm going to go make disciples, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I guess it just feels like sometimes... And this is just my own perception. This isn't the truth. You can follow so many pages on Facebook or YouTube, and it just feels like all you're seeing is trolls troll each other. And, you know, that that's disheartening. And I, I want to try to move away from that. And I try to reel myself in and not get into a quote unquote Facebook debate unless I'm really willing to put the time in and think this is important to discuss. But I don't want to go out and just spend all my time uh, arguing about gospel matters when I should be those gospel matters really matter to the unbeliever. And it's, right. it's that information is of the utmost importance to the unbeliever, if that makes sense. Right. Well, Eli, I have had a wonderful time and uh, I hope you have 
understood. And that's there's I definitely have some ignorance in this this category of the up theology, which is why I wanted to have you on and ask my questions. But uh, you've been very gracious to me. Do you have any closing thoughts to the listeners who haven't really dove into the apologetics uh, issue, and this might be their first exposure to it? Do you have a book they would you would recommend? Or obviously, I'm going to recommend your channel. But what what would you give to someone trying to really put their uh, to to buckle in and learn this? Well, um, there are a couple of routes you can take. Now, if you want to read a book, there's some resources. Um, and I, I don't want to be uh, self-promoting, but I highly no, recommend, do it. I highly recommend <laughs> people take a structured class. And that's why I'm offering the class that I offer um, on Revealed Apologetics, Precept U, because it allows you to do things in a structured way. So you can read random things here and there, and you'll learn a lot. But I think it's good to kind of walk through some things in, in more detail, have some structure, be able to talk about it with people. So I highly recommend people, if, if you're interested in learning presuppositional apologetics, um, I do have that course that I that I mentioned that I was offering where the classes will be starting on June 7th. And literally, I send out a Zoom link. People watch the lectures. It comes with outlines and uh, PowerPoints that they can use after the course and use it for their, for their own purposes. Um, they watch the video content. We meet, we discuss, we go deeper. Uh, we do a little role play. Um, and at the fifth week, I, I invite a special guest. I think I had Matt Slick from karm.org come on and he pretended to be an atheist. And so the students were able to use their, uh, what they learned against him. Um, I've had Saiten Bruggenkate come on, uh, yeah. who's a well-known presuppositionalist. And he, he that was my of, uh, first exposure to it. Just, just being yep. honest. Yep. So, um, so it's a lot of fun to, to do the, the course route with more structure, but if you're going to just go with the books, which there are some good ones. Um, there are um, some books that came out by American Vision, which are actually transcriptions of lectures that Bonson gave. And these okay. lectures were, in some context, they were actually to high school students. So they're pretty easy. So one came out, it's called Against All Opposition, Defending okay. the Christian Worldview. Um, and it reads like a conversation, like he's teaching a class. So it's not like you're reading like a technical work. And it's got, it's got like study questions and definitions, there's a glossary in there, so you can learn all of the relevant uh, terms. And then there is uh, the impossibility of the contrary. Uh, without God, you can't prove anything. And again, this is, uh, you know, transcriptions of Bonson's lectures um, and super helpful with study questions and everything. And also this one I highly recommend, Pushing the Antithesis. It sounds complicated. The worst thing about this book is its title. It sounds too technical, but really, <laughs> this is a series of lectures that Bonson gave to high school students before they went to college. It has homework assignments in it, and it has study questions and a giant question and answer section where they ask certain questions and they give you the answers and you can kind of read and kind of follow what's going on. So I highly recommend you get this. This was reprinted in the same style of this one. This is the older, the older one. It's um, you can actually find a, a, a version of this book in this format on AmericanVision.org, AmericanVision.org, which uh, Gary Demar, I think. I was about to say that's them. Gary Demar. I, yep. I, I really like Gary Demar. Yes, I like Gary as well, and he's got. You can get them all there now. Here is the here is the thing that I highly recommend. All of Bonson's recorded lectures have just recently, within the last year and a half have been made uh, accessible free. Bonson U, right? Sermon Audio, Bonson U. And I remember being part of the original email plan to kind of work this whole thing out. And eventually David Bonson, who was Greg Bonson's son, actually was linked into the email. And he kind of said, 
don't worry about it. You don't have to raise the funds. I'm going to purchase all of the lectures and uh, from the person who owned it. And uh, he was going to purchase it on behalf of the Bonson Project so that they can use it and put all the content out for free. So if folks go to Sermon Audio, mm-hmm. and you type in Bonson Project, all of Bonson's lectures are there. Now, let me tell you something. If people look at what I do and they say, man, I really wish I could do what you're doing and learn and know things that you know, 90% of what I've learned of presuppositional apologetics has not been through the books. 99.9% of what I know with presuppositional apologetics is through listening to hours and hours and hours and hours of Bonson's lectures which by the way, are better than his books because you get, here's the thing. When you learn through teaching and the way someone speaks and you can kind of actually feel the rhythm of their mind as they're unpacking things, you assimilate that and make it your own in a way that is difficult when you're reading a book. And so a lot of the things that I've learned is because I've, I've heard Dr. Bonson say it in a certain way. And I'm able to kind of say, hey, that's a great way. And, and it comes to mind when someone asks a question, I, I remember what Bonson said and I could have that response because I've, Bonson's lectures have become the background music of my mind. And so it has apologetic content. He's got philosophy courses. He's got sermons, theology yeah. courses. There's just, I think, thousands of lectures that have been recorded over the years for free. So I highly recommend folks go to Sermon Audio, Bonson Project, and check all that all that good stuff out. Amen. You know, the way you love and respect Greg Bonson and how he's kind of been a, you know, a hero, if you will, of the faith is the way I've listened to people like James White um, and also Gary DeMar, Steve Gregg on like eschatology stuff. So the way your brain is always thinking apologetically. I love Steve my- Gregg. Yeah, Steve Gregg. You might be surprised because he's like totally yeah. not a Calvinist, but his, no, he's not. He's his not. Verse by verse Bible study is beautiful. Is he's awesome. such yeah. a smart guy. Yeah, I agree. I have learned things in the way he says it, and Dr. James White says it, um, just in my conversations about certain theological topics. Because, sure. like we were saying, a lot of times my conversation with unbelievers is me simply clarifying a misunderstanding of true Christian doctrine. That's right. And I feel like nine out of ten times it's eschatology related. Um, because I'm I'm telling people like, well, you know, you know, the majority view in America sure is what's called dispensationalism, and you've heard about a rapture. But actually, historically speaking, here's here's where the church has been on the second coming and things like that. And that's kind of my wheelhouse of talking about the faith. Um, so I listen to hours and hours of that stuff. You know, being going through cancer and chemo, I had a lot of time to do just put on headphones and listen to sermons and teaching. And you're right. The brain processes um, that a lot, little better than maybe, maybe reading it off a page. I'm an audio like, learner. So yeah, I'm an audio learner. Same. And I know there's some people that are different and they want to read it and that's how they sure. they're, they're way better at those kind of things. Uh, but I will link some Bonson stuff too. Um, and I guess um, Eli, I really appreciate this god is using you in such a wonderful way we prayed earlier we're using technology in an edifying way to reach people to educate christians and then obviously reach the unbeliever and 
I, I want to be a part of this for as long as I can. That's why I'm so grateful to network and talk to people like you and Stephen Boyce, who are just, just making their life's mission, showing that God is he's here, he's real, he expects something of you, you're accountable to him. And most of all, uh, we believe that your life can be not made easier, but definitely enriched when you're living for the true purpose that God intended it to be. And uh, we talk about that apologetically and eschatologically, soteriologically, it all is intrinsically connected. And, um, oh, I, I guess that was my question for you. I'm sorry. Eli, does this lead you to a theonomic view of government or do you, are you able to separate your view of God and presuppositional apologetics from, because obviously Bonson took it to a further degree. And I, I think people in apologia do as well. Are you on that page? Or are you still on the fence? How do you feel about the Christian and government and what we're supposed to, to say about that? Yeah, I'm still in process working through that. It, I, I've studied a lot, almost everything of Bonson's presuppositionalism, but I haven't mm -hmm. really dug deep into the theonomy issue. Now, people say, well, if you're going to be a presuppositionalist, you have to be a theonomist. Well, I don't think so. That, that uh, regardless if that's true or not, um, I'd have to see the necessary connections and components of that. But as of now, where I am, uh, it hasn't been a topic that I've been really uh, delving into, but I intend to, uh, because I think it's an important issue. It's just, I mean, I've got three kids, three little kids. I got a full-time job. I have to pick and choose course, what I spend my time listening to. And, uh, theonomy is not, not that I don't care about God's law, obviously. No, I, no, I there, get but, it. Um, but it's just, hasn't been, uh, practically speaking, it hasn't been a topic that has been a practical application for what I do. So I haven't really delved sure. into it as much as, as I would like, but um, yeah, I'm not sure where I stand. No, that's on a that. very fair answer because that's where I'm at as well. I I hold these truths very dear to my heart, but I'm not sure if I believe that they logically entail X, Y, and Z yet. Right? right. Um, you maybe know, they do. I mean, I, I right, no maybe they do. And I, I have think no problem if it does. I just haven't explored it enough to know for myself. Sure. And I think what's hard for me is, you know. Obviously, Greg Bonson passed away many years ago, but some of my theological heroes are still alive, and I'm watching their thinking evolve, if you will. Um, I mean, I love Dr. James White, but I, I was pretty shocked when he came out as like post-millennial and general equity theonomic, I guess is what they call it. And I love and respect James White. He has been a very influential person for me in, in Roman Catholicism. That's one of my hobby horses is talking about Rome and apologetics to Rome. Okay. Uh, but I was, I've had to examine myself and go, okay, I know number one, I need to study it, but I'm wondering, is this where this all entails? Where's the nuance? Um, because I'm, I, you know, for instance, Eli, I'm, I'm very pro-life. And, and the reason I am pro-life is a, because the Bible and God's word is my standard, sure. but also I have a personal experience with it. I was, um, in the womb, they found that my heart wasn't going to work right. And at first they thought I had down syndrome and they told my mom, it would be just be easier to abort me and not deal with it. Mm. And she said, no, no, his name is Isaiah. And we're going to give him a chance. We're going to see what God has in store for him. And so when I talk to people about abortion, I'm very passionate and I believe it's wrong. No matter what truly I do. I don't believe we, we punish the, the, the child for the father's sins if there was 
you know, rape or something heinous like that. But I, I find myself examining and going, okay, I think the law of the land should be pro-life, but where does my Christian ethics and theology blend into all this? Am I, is this consistently theonomic or is, and can I just be a, a Christian that votes on a couple key issues and then never pays attention to it again? Mm-hmm. I'm still thinking through those things. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, um, I, I'm a, a very black and white consistent guy. And it really bothers me t- if I find an inconsistency, sure. I want to solve it, you know? Yeah. So I was just curious if you, if you had a, a view on that, or if you just are Maybe still I'll try to get a guest on to talk about it. Well, uh, I would surely watch that. Yeah. I, I would, I would be interested in having someone to, on to talk about that, but uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you ever want to talk pro-life stuff, hit me up, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Eli, thank you for this. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed um, this free-flowing discussion about apologetics, just two brothers talking it out. I didn't have a real narrow outline because I really just kind of wanted to circle around whatever came up, whether it be Calvinism or politics, because it all, you know, it's all intrinsically connected. It's kind of funny, Eli, because you probably find yourself defending the Trinity a lot, but I find myself correcting the notion that well, Jesus said he was going to come back in that generation, and he never did. Mm-hmm. And I always find myself going to a partial preterist hermeneutic and going, well, hold on. Jesus actually did exactly what he said he was going to do in Matthew 24. You're just not looking at it correctly. And Christians for a very long time have looked at it like this. So that's one of those apologetic moments where I'm just talking theology, you know? Yeah. So um, I hear you, man. I know you have a life and a, a wife and kids to take care of. So I want to respect your time. Do you have any closing thoughts or do you think we're good to go here, man? I think we're good to go. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be on your channel. And uh, I hope that this conversation has been, is useful to those who are listening. I thank you okay. so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Okay. Well, till next time, everyone, it depends on how you look at it. Mm-hmm.